So our theme, your theme for the weekend has been greater works doing what? Looking back and moving forward. So it's important for us to understand where our origins have come from, looking back. Uh, Nothing to fear for the future except we forget God's leading and his teaching in our past history. But also we want to be thinking forward. And so this evening, um, I want to start with something new. I shared it a little earlier today. And that is a new project that's taking place in Israel. Uh, This is a little town just north of Galilee. Anyone hear of a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene? Of course you have. Well, this is where her, this is where she fled to when she left Bethany after the experience with Simon. Now it's called Migdal, and it's just on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we've been looking for a place to start a lifestyle center in Israel for about six years, plus or minus. And every place that we've looked at has had difficulties associated with it. Um, Some of the properties that we looked at had buildings that were built on the neighbor's property. Some of the properties we looked at had buildings that were not legal, that they had been constructed without the proper permits. This property is very unique in that it's legal, which is really, well, mostly legal, not entirely, mostly legal, um, but it's also privately owned. And 94% of the land in Israel is really owned by the government. Only 6% is in private ownership, and that has to do with the British and the Ottoman Empire coming into that area. But this piece of property is privately owned. It makes it easy for a non-Israeli to own the property. So we purchased this property. Uh, We're calling the new lifestyle center Migdalia. Migdal means tower or refuge, and so God is my tower or fortress is the name of the place. Uh, This is kind of the outside back of it, a little living room picture, and part of the, see if I can get the pointer to work on this, yeah. Um, Nice outside to give lectures, a little pool. There's also a jacuzzi there. You know, it's a small place, but it has five separate guest rooms, which can be utilized, plus four bedrooms in the main house. Um, And so we're really excited. We're taking possession of it at the end of this month. And as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a lifestyle center for the secular people in Israel. This is Pastor David Shalom, who is the um, only Israeli-born Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Israel. In fact, he is the first Israeli-born Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And Israel has been a target of the Seventh-day Adventist church before it was Israel, since the 1900s. Ellen White gave an address at the General Conference calling for people to work for the Jews, and in the early 1900s, a piece of property was purchased just outside the old city of Jerusalem. And it's been a long time there, so I solicit your prayers. I was there to negotiate for the property, happened to be there at Passover time, which, if you're not Jewish, probably doesn't have as much significance to you as it does to me, having been born Jewish, every year when you celebrate Passover, you say in your family, next year in Jerusalem. That's right. Well, I was finally able to be there for Passover. That was a rich experience as well. Just want to touch on one thing quickly here before we move to our scriptures as well. And that is... um, This is a part of the western wall, the wall that was around the temple in Jesus' day. 
And you can see these large stone that were once part of the temple mount that were cast down. Remember Jesus saying that, right? That not one stone will be left upon another. And here you can see all these stones go around, and, or on the ground rather. And if you were to walk down there, it's really amazing to be able to touch a fulfillment of prophecy. You know, that here are stones that Jesus said, these are going to be cast down, and here they are on the ground. Now what's more intriguing to me is this. So here's a picture, and here's this arch here. Notice this man sitting, and notice the arch. That's this arch, this man sitting. This was all covered with rubble up until about 20, 30 years ago. And so if you had gone to Israel in the early 1900s when the first church first went there, or other times if you had gone to the wall, you wouldn't see this wall. You wouldn't have seen these rocks. They were all covered with dirt and rubble over the years. But it's amazing how archaeology has uncovered things for us, again, to confirm the validity of God's word. You and I can have a great confidence in God's word. Now, this morning at Eastridge, I started a series on kind of closing events, but I started it by talking about God's purpose in prophecy. God's purpose in prophecy, and I'm not going to share that with you tonight, but it's important for us to realize that God has a deeper purpose for us in knowing what's going to happen than just kind of understanding what's going to take place in a couple of years. His purpose in prophecy is that our hearts would be prepared. That as we look forward to do greater works, there's a deep work of reform, revival, reformation, repentance that needs to take place in each one of our hearts and lives. Earlier this summer, I had the opportunity at speaking at the Madison College alumni. They asked me to come there as president of, of OCI, and it was really intriguing. Um, I looked at everybody's name tags, and I saw that they graduated from Madison College or the Academy, you know, 1949, 1944, you know. So I started doing the math, and, and these people, no offense to anybody here, but these people were old. Um, you know, if you graduated from college in 1944, you do the math. You figure out how old you are. But I was really impressed with the impact of the health message on these people because they were spry and they were thoughtful, you know, like Herschel. Um, sorry, brother. Uh, but you're still young. You're only 70-something, so just, right. Um, sorry, friend. But if we think about Madison College, we can think back to how Madison started, but how did Madison end? In, a, in distress. You know, there's something happened in the history of Madison that as they were trying to move forward, they had forgotten where they came from. And an organization that started out of tremendous sacrifice, the mother of all self-supporting institutions, you know, the school that's the pattern for all the work we do around the world, ended in a very different way. Now, I understand that institutions have life cycles as well, but something fundamental happened at Madison where there was a shift, there was a loss of focus, there was a forgetting of where they had come from and really where they were supposed to be going forward to. They began to go much more, let's say, conventional. And then the passion that drove that organization ended, and unfortunately, it has been closed. And it reminded me of a quotation 
by a philosopher of history by the name of William Durant. Um, he says a lot of bad things, but he said this one intelligent thing. He says, a nation is born stoic and dies epicurean. What does that mean? A nation is born stoic. What were the stoics known for? What were the stoics known for? What? Spartan, okay, that's another metaphor for us. Okay, they're Spartan, what would that mean? Simple living, they, hardship, they were inured to hardship, they, you know, Stoics. So a nation is born Stoic. The United States was born out of great sacrifice. Madison was born out of great sacrifice. Wildwood was born out of great sacrifice. A nation is born Stoic and dies what? Epicurean, what does that mean? Epicureans are indulging, right? They always want to have something for themselves. And as I read this quote and I was thinking about Madison and uh, I think about ministries around the world, there is a lot of truth in this statement. That oftentimes ministries, Christians, organizations start out of sacrifice, but then they begin to die when they become very soft when they begin to think more of their comfort level than of the mission that they're involved with. They're no longer remembering where they have come from. And so, in light of that, I'd like to draw your attention to a story in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. So I'd like to look at the story with you. Um, It's called a number of different things. The parable of the landowner, the parable of the harvesters. I call it the parable of the generous landowner. And it's the story in scripture, Matthew chapter 20, that tells us where Jesus told this parable of a man who had a large vineyard. Um, And in, in verse one, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner a man who was a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, most of you are familiar with the story, but let's just kind of think through some of the main details. Jesus tells the story. It's in a a sequence of several things, which we'll see momentarily. And he looks out over his congregation, his crowd that's there, and he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like this. There's a certain landowner, and he goes out early in the morning, and he's got a large harvest, and so he's wanting to hire laborers. Very common in uh, that culture. Not so common here, but still common in certain parts of the United States. I was just at ASI. I went for an early morning run, and there was a bunch of laborers, day laborers, hoping to get hired. They thought, wow, here's the story. They were standing there waiting to get hired to work for the day. And this landowner goes out, and he says, You come work for me, you work in my field, and I will pay you a day's wage, one denarii, which was a common day's wage. They agree, they go to work. This landowner comes back a couple of hours, and he finds some other people there. Perhaps the harvest was overwhelming, and he hires some more people. Comes back a little later, hires other people. Comes back later, hires others. Come back at the 11th hour. Now, why the landowner is doing all this is a mystery. That usually would be the steward's job. But here, this landowner, the man that owned all this, he comes out, and at the 11th hour, he says, I want to hire you guys as well. I'll pay you whatever's right. They go to work. 
the end of the day, everybody gets paid, and he inverts the custom. It would have been customary to start with the ones that had worked the longest, but he inverts the custom, and he says, well, I'm going to pay the last guys first. They get paid. One denarii. Their eyes are large. They're grateful. Then those guys that have worked a couple of hours longer, they get paid, all the way down to the very first workers, who also get paid what? One denarii. How do you feel about that story? What was that word? Unfair. Anybody else? Okay. Injustice. Unfair. Injustice. Many people didn't speak up, but I would guess that that's the response of most of us. Even though we've heard the story before, we know how the story ends, every time we hear it, we feel unfair. Why is that? Who are we identifying with in the story? The first workers. Think about that with me for a minute. If you were the 11th hour worker, well, let's, let me hold that for a moment. If you were the first worker, and you were in the marketplace early in the morning, and the master came in and said, look, I want to hire you. How do you feel when you're hired? Well, you are excited. I'm going to be able to provide food for my family tonight. I'm going to work all day. I'm going to have something to give them at the end of the day. You are glad. You go to work, and then you're working. And if you were hired a couple of hours later, Wow, okay, well, you don't know exactly what you're going to get paid, but you're happy as well. If you were the 11th hour worker, what does that mean? Where have you been standing all day? Standing there, waiting to be put to work. What are you thinking about? I'm going to come home and I'm not going to have any money for food. My child's going to go hungry tonight. My little baby is going to cry. How am I going to provide for my family? And there you are. You know, you're wringing in your hands. You're thinking. You're walking back and forth. You're praying. God, here I am. I, I want to work. But you have nothing. And it's the 11th hour. And it's like, it's no use. You are rock bottom discouraged. Until the landowner comes. He says, look, go to work. Whatever's right, I'll pay you. And then when you get the denarii, how do you feel? Huh, now I'm amazed. So now the parable is not unfair. It's what? It's amazing. But the problem is we don't see it as amazing. We see it as unfair. Because that is our corrupt, fallen human nature that thinks Somehow, in some way, by what I do, I am going to merit salvation. And the more I'm sacrificing, the more I'm in danger of imbibing that kind of an attitude. And you say, well, wait a second. What do you mean by that? Well, let me, let's look here a little bit at the story again. Um, We hear the story, we read the story, we realize how we would feel. And many interpreters notice that, many Bible scholars notice, that when Jesus tells his parables, often at the end of the parable, he gives you the punchline. 
So um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, what's the punchline? What's the thrust of that parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, be loving. Do, go and do likewise. Help your neighbor, right? And, and so he, oftentimes in his parables, he will kind of give you at the end of the parable what the parable means. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that here directly. So people have come up with um, different interpretations of what the parable means. You know, some people say, well, it means don't compare your pay. Well, that's probably good advice. Um, don't be miserable if somebody has paid more than they deserve. That's, that's good advice as well. Um, certainly don't run your business this way. Uh, you know, anybody that has a business, oh, yeah, come to work at 5 o'clock and I'll pay you for a whole day, no problem. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not trying to invert the social order of how things work. In order to really discern what Jesus is talking about here, we need to look at the broader context. We need to ask the question, what is the setting of the parable? So if you have your Bibles, you're already open to Matthew 20. Let's just turn back um, to Matthew chapter 19. And uh, in Matthew chapter 19... At the end of Matthew chapter 19, there's a conversation between Peter and Christ, in which, in Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter asked the question, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for who? For us. Now, what's the setting of this? Let's slide back up a little bit further. And notice, let's go all the way back to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, in verse 16. This is the account where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And what does it say? Matthew 19, in verse 16. Someone read that for me, nice and clear and loud. Matthew 19, in verse 16. That's a good verse. It's not the right one, though. What's the broad context of this parable? Not just eternal life. What good thing that I can do that I may inherit a life? But notice, first of all, what is this? How does this man address Jesus? Good master. Good master. What good thing should I do that I can inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, of course, answers him. As we just heard from the other verse, you know, uh, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? And Jesus enumerates the commandments. And then the man says, well, I've done all these from my youth up. What do I lack yet? And then Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You will be one of my disciples. And then Jesus says, down in chapter 19, in verse 22, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So here's this encounter, encounter. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says to Jesus, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And when he is presented with that one thing, what does he do? He goes away. The cost is way too steep. He goes away. And then Jesus turns to the disciples in the following verses, and he looks at the disciples and he says, you know, it's really hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. In fact, 
it's so hard that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And um, some of you might have in your mind that in, in ancient Israel, there was a door in the side of the ancient city in Jerusalem, which was called the eye of a needle. Anybody hear that? Peachers use this all the time. Well, it's not true, by the way. It was developed in the 14, 13, 1400s. Um, there was no door on the side. Jesus is saying it is easier for a rich man to enter into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And what's the response of the disciples? That's impossible. It is impossible, my friends, with us, but not with God. And so the setting here, again, Good master, what good thing should I do? Jesus puts his finger on the plague spot of this rich young ruler. He resists and he walks away. And then the disciples hear that the rich aren't even going to be saved. It's very hard. And then Peter says in verse 27, well, let me see if I can figure this out. What good thing should I do? Hmm. Give everything up. Well, master... We've given everything. What are we going to get? Do you see the point, my friends? There are different ways to try to attempt to earn our salvation. We can do it through abundance, like the rich young ruler being selfish and wanting to hold on to things, or we can do it through a misunderstanding of the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to. And that is what Peter is echoing. Well, what about us? We've given up everything. As a president of an organization that works with supporting ministries all around the world, do you think supporting, self-supporting workers ever could be confronted with this tendency of somehow thinking, you know, I've been here for all this time and I've sacrificed and I've really worked hard. I got to get something out of this deal That is why we don't like the parable of the generous landowner. We identify, we, you and me, we identify with the guys that have been working all day long. And we don't realize that really we are all 11th hour laborers. And the reward that we ultimately will get is not based on our sacrifice, but is based on the death of Jesus Christ. And the reward is all out of proportion to what we've done. And when we begin to see that, then it's like this parable. Well, this isn't an unfair parable. Now, I admit to you, I still think the parable is unfair. I'm sorry. Because it is so ingrained to us. But if we can put ourselves in the story of the man who at the 11th hour is getting something that he didn't deserve, and he's feeding his family, and he is so grateful. Do you think what happened the next day? You think that 11th hour worker was like, well, boy, that guy's a fool. I'm never going to go work for him again? Of course not. I want to work for that guy. And when you and I begin to see, catch something of the magnificent freedom that God's given us, the, out, the total lack of um, proportion between the reward and, and what we deserve, you know, our hearts become moved. We say, yeah, that's the kind of God I want to serve. 
So Peter's question, what shall we have therefore, revealed a spirit that was the spirit of what? A hireling. And who was this that had the spirit of the hireling? This is Peter. Peter had given up everything. Is it possible to give up everything and have the spirit of a hireling? Lord, you know, I don't make much. You know, I, I don't have much. Is it possible that our thinking reveals to us that we have the spirit of a hireling? Uh, quotation goes on here. This is from Christ Object Lessons 396. The disciples still worked the with, excuse me. The disciples still worked with the thought of meriting a reward. What's that say? In proportion to their labor. They cherished a spirit of self-exaltation and self-complacency, and they made comparisons among themselves. When one of them failed in any particular, the others indulged feelings of superiority. So there's a test for you, my friends, brothers and sisters. If I see somebody fail, or if I see somebody that's different than I am in some kind of way, and I have a feeling of superiority, I have the spirit of a hireling. And I'm really there for the wrong motive. I, I, you know, stay where you are. I'm not saying you should move. But the Lord wants to transform us completely deep in our repentance so that we all realize that we're all in need of his transforming grace. And that's what the story is all about. God's amazing transforming grace. Um, you know, in addition to uh, Peter's comments here, uh, let me continue, sorry, let's go to Matthew chapter 19, and in verse 28, Jesus responds to Peter, and Jesus said to them, to the disciples, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Verse 30. But many who are what? Will become last and the last first, verse, chapter 20, verse 1, for or because. Notice the connection. Jesus is uniting this parable of the kingdom of heaven with his conversation with Peter, which springs out of the discussion with the, with the rich young ruler. Remember the question the rich young ruler said to Jesus? Good master, what? Good things should I do? Well, let's look here a little bit further. Matthew chapter 20. Um, sorry, another quotation from Christ Object Lessons, page 397. Not the amount of labor performed or its visible results, but the spirit in which the work is done makes it of value with God. Very important point for us. But let's look here, back to Matthew chapter 20. As the story unfolds, the people that had come first, they begin to complain. Verse 11 of Matthew 20. When they received their pay, they grumbled, they murmured, they were complaining at the landowner. 
And in verse 12, it tells us, You have made those who only worked one hour equal with us who borne the burden and heat of the day. Scorching heat of the day. Verse 13. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to the last man. Which man? What did Jesus just tell Peter? The first shall be what? Last and the last first. I want to give to the last man the same as you. Verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Is your eye evil because what? I am what? What did the rich young ruler say to Jesus? Good master, what good thing should I do? Jesus is telling the story. He's trying to clarify what it means to be a good master. The good master is not one that exacts a lot out of us, that has a list for us. The good master is one that is generous. The good master is the one that repays us far beyond what we deserve. The good master is the one that loves to extend grace to those in need. Wherever they found, anywhere in the world, in a self-supporting institution or not in a self-supporting institution, we're all in need of grace. Is your eye evil because I am good? And how does he show his goodness? By bestowing on the unworthy what they don't deserve. It's true. You and I are all unworthy laborers. We are all 11th hour workers. And the reward we will receive will be way out of proportion to what God has given us. Does that mean we should labor less? Of course not. But it means we should labor more intelligently. It means we should labor not in comparison to one another. It means we should labor with a heart full of gratitude for what God has done. So the question for you, for me as well this evening, is where are you in the story? Who do you relate to? Too often we relate to the first hour workers. We're really We're all 11th hour workers. We think of the generosity in this story, and there's numerous things about the generosity of the the landowner. First of all, there's the repeated trips to the marketplace, uncalled for for a landowner. Second of all, there was the late trip to the marketplace. There was the open payment for all the workers. The landowner wants everyone to see what's happening. Inverting the order of the payment is done to highlight the generosity of the landowner paying them all on on purpose. And why did he do this? Why did he pay them openly? Why did he pay them all the same? Was he attempting to excite the jealousy of the first-hour workers? Was that his purpose? Or was he simply trying to show us how good he is? Good master, what good thing should I do? What good thing did he do? He was generous and compassionate with all. And that's what God wants us to do. That famous passage from Ministry of Healing, Jesus mingled among men as one who desired their their good. Just wanted to bless them. He showed sympathy to them. 
just because he liked them. Now, my time's slipping. But let me just say something here. If you do a study in the writings of Ellen White on the word unfeigned, unfeigned, that's the kind of love that Jesus had. Unfeigned love. It just welled up out of him to everybody. I don't have that kind of love. Oftentimes, I have to, you know, focus to keep to talking to certain people. My wife knows it. Not, I don't have the problem with my wife, sorry. But she knows I have it with other people. But Jesus totally unfeigned love, interest in everyone, all the time. What good things should I do? Be generous, gracious, like Jesus Christ. Feeling our insufficiency, we are to contemplate Christ, and through him, who is the strength of all strength, the thought of all thought, the willing and obedient will gain victory after victory. Amen. Feeling our inefficiency, contemplate Christ, follow his strength. Heaven's golden gate opens not to the self-exalted. It is not lifted up to the proud in spirit, but the everlasting portals will open wide to the trembling touch of a little child. Christ Object Lessons, page 404. The smallest duty done in sincerity and self-forgetfulness is more pleasing to God than the greatest work when marred with self-seeking. He regards more the love and faithfulness with which we work than the amount we do. We don't judge that way. But he does. Because he's the good master. I want to learn about from him. What about you? That transformation in your heart where you're not comparing yourself with somebody you're not being glad when somebody else doesn't reach your measure you're happy when someone else succeeds far beyond you because you're really concerned for God's glory and his work is your eye evil because his is good I pray not if it is there's good news he's in the business of doing heart transplants and he wants to give us each a new heart and a new spirit and put his law in our minds and hearts so that we reflect his very love. Don't you desire that, my friends? To be free from the shackles of comparison, to be free from the, you know, the fetters of, oh, am I, how am I doing compared to so-and-so? And just be grateful that God has given you something to do in his vineyard. We're all 11th-hour laborers, but where are we in the story? We're going to get a reward. And that reward is based on the death of Jesus Christ, freely bestowed to each one of us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the amazing grace that you bestow on each one of us. I pray this evening, Father, that you would do the work in our hearts that is necessary to help us truly reflect the character of Jesus. Father, as we look forward to greater works, to expanding your work, to the second coming of Christ, we don't want to be like first-hour laborers. We want to labor with joy of working with you in the vineyard. We want to have a deep sense of the debt that we owe you. 
and the abundance of your grace toward us. Thank you, Lord. Continue to bless us. Give us a good night's rest and be with our meeting tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.